0: Amen. That song couldn't set up our new series, our new study, uh, any better. Some of the words of that song, that that God has never failed us, he never will, that he is our confidence. Another word for confidence is hope. Turn in your Bibles to uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. We're going to be studying First Thessalonians this uh, winter, and the theme is all about hope. Now, when it comes to hope, that song we just sang, uh, there's different understandings of what hope is. Like there's the worldly view of hope. The worldly view of hope is an uncertain wish that things will get better. It's groundless. It's, it's basically positive thinking brought to romanticism. It, it, it's, it's just hoping, wishfully, that, that things will change. Like, I hope it doesn't rain. There may not be, in fact any basis to believe that. As a matter of fact, there may be all kinds of basis, especially this afternoon, to know that it's probably going to rain. But a worldly view of hope is this groundless, uncertain wish that things will change. And many of us in the world today are desperate for things to change. The world is desperately looking for that kind of hope. things will change. These past two years have been so rugged in so many ways. We just want COVID to go away. We don't want to be worried about health anymore. We don't want to be worried about politics. We don't want to be worried about division. We don't want to be worried about the economy. We just hope that things will change. Well, that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a certainty that things will change based on the promises of God's Word grounded in the finished work of Christ. Now, our hope ultimately is that even circumstances will change at the return of Christ— And one of the elements of hope that Paul emphasizes again and again in 1 Thessalonians is that change that is certain to come at the return of Christ. There's five chapters in 1 Thessalonians, and every single chapter mentions the return of Christ. Now, Christians also hope things will get better before Christ returns. And there aren't necessarily guarantees that that will happen. If you're talking about changes in circumstances. What will change, however, if we continue to fix our eyes on Christ. Is our perspective in the midst of trouble. Hope can be experienced. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial. And Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to encourage the church there, the new Christians there, the young Christians there in hope. And as we study 1 Thessalonians, we will grow in hope as well. Not wishful thinking that things might change but in actuality we would experience transformation even if our circumstances for now don't change it's been said that people can go several weeks without food and people can go a few days without water Some people can go eight minutes without air. But it's also been said, human beings can't live one second without hope. And that's why people are desperately turning to all kinds of things in this world in hope that circumstances will change. This past week, What was one thing people turned to out of hope, desperate hope, that things might get better? It was one of the largest Powerball lotteries in history. There was no winner at Christmas. It kept on rolling over. And this past Wednesday, there was a $632 million pot. Now, do you realize how slim of a hope you have to win the lottery, you're more likely to get struck by lightning than to win the lottery. You're more likely to get eaten by a shark than to win the lottery. So why do people do it? Because it offers, though oh so slight, this wishful thought that maybe things might get better. As Christians, we don't have to turn to wishful thinking. We simply turn to Jesus, who is Himself our great hope. So let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word and follow along as I read. I'm just going to read three verses today, and I'm only going to cover one point. So uh, verses 1 through 3. Paul, Sylvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and here you go, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our greater hope. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. Folks, this is God's word. He gave it just because he loves us and he longs for us to experience a certain hope. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask you now to send the anointing of your Spirit upon this congregation. Anoint the words that are spoken. Anoint the ears and hearts that hear. And God, might we all be changed as we're filled with renewed hope. We ask this in Jesus' name, for His glory. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So we're just going to cover one point this morning. We're going to have a huge introduction to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at three sources of renewed hope. And the one source we're going to look at this morning is the goodness of of providence. The point this morning is find renewed hope in the goodness of providence. Now, that's an interesting first point when you understand the context behind First Thessalonians because both for the young church at Thessalonica and for Paul, things were pretty dicey. Circumstances were not the best, and things situationally were not going well. It all began with the second missionary journey of Paul. Let me put a map up there. And you'll find to the far right, if you keep going to the right down in the bottom, you'll find Israel. You'll find Jerusalem, of course. And Paul had just come from Jerusalem with his good pal Barnabas. You remember that when Paul was converted, his name was Saul. Everybody was afraid of Saul, and Barnabas, the son of encouragement, took him by the hand, introduced him to everybody, and vouched that his conversion was real and genuine. And so Paul and Barnabas had the first missionary journey where they went through, if you see the the purple and the yellow pamphylia, and then you see some of those... Uh, cities that are in the green I guess Derby and Lystra Iconium that was that was part of the first missionary journey those those are are part of what we call the galatian churches and and Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. It was his very first letter written about forty eight a d well first Thessalonians was his second letter. It was, it was one of the earliest, the second earliest letter Paul ever wrote. It was wrote, written from Corinth. If you go to the far left, you see a K-I, you see Corinth and Athens. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians from Corinth in 50 A.D. Well, before that, before the second missionary journey, they had the Jerusalem Council. You'll find this in Acts 15. All the elders of all the churches got together very Presbyterian of them, and they were talking about what do we do with Gentile Christians? You see, there was this huge debate, did Gentiles who become Christians, did they really need to become Jews? Because the early church was, of course, primarily Jewish. But there was a huge debate as to whether even Jews were would keep being Jews as they followed Christ, because Christ was the whole point, not following Judaism. So the elders filled out a letter after making a decision that said that Gentile Christians just needed to hold to certain things, and they would be followers of Christ, and the primary thing, of course, was transferring their trust from their own efforts or transferring their trust from idols, which is what Paul writes about in 1 Thessalonians 1, and they transfer their hope and trust to Jesus Christ and his finished work alone. So then Paul and Barnabas are given this decision from the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, and they're to go and revisit all those Galatian churches telling them about the decision. Now, things start off on the wrong foot because Barnabas, who has stood up so much for Paul, wants to bring a guy named John Mark with them. Now, if you know anything from the first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, he was with Paul and Barnabas in that first missionary journey and he either got homesick or became afraid or whatever, but he left. He abandoned them. And Barnabas wanted to give John Mark a second chance. Paul, however, ironically, you'd think Paul would understand graciousness, right? Paul says, no, we're not going to take John Mark. And such a division and argument rose up between Paul and Barnabas, that they split. Now, I said that First Thessalonians was written in the context of hard providences that we're going to find out turned for good. Now, the reason why I'm focusing on this when it comes to hope is that every single one of us faces hard providences from time to time. And maybe coming out of the holidays, one of those hard providences you're facing has to do with broken relationships, just like Paul and Barnabas. And as a result of those broken relationships, maybe your hope is sagging and you're wondering what God's up to and why there's so much pain and heartache in your life. Well, one of the good providences that arose out of the hard providence is after Paul and Barnabas split, and Paul, let's go back to the map, went to Derby and Lystra and Iconium, he picked up two other co-workers. He picked up a guy named Silvanus, Silas, in verse 1, and he picked up Timothy, So even though there was a hard providence surrounding Paul and Barnabas splitting up, God used that to multiply the number of workers in the church so that Paul then was able to disciple and train and equip Timothy and Silas. And so one of the ways that we... Get our hope renewed is by constantly seeking a curiosity over what God may be up to in the midst of hard providences. It was painful for Paul and Barnabas to split. And yet Paul had his hope renewed as he was able to see how God used that hard providence to move the kingdom forward. Then after Paul picks up uh, Timothy and Silas, but also Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, We learn early in Acts 16 that Paul wants to keep going left. You see Antioch and Pisidia there right next to the green and the orange. Now, by the way, there's two Antiochs. This could get confusing. There's Antioch in Syria. Syria, of course, is the country just north of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea. Okay. There's an Antioch in Syria, which was the sending church of Paul and Barnabas. We send missionaries. We send ministry partners through this church. Antioch in Syria was the sending church of Paul and Barnabas. But there's also an Antioch in Pisidia, which is where uh, the Galatian churches were. Now, when Paul gets to Antioch in Pisidia, he wants to keep going left. He wants to go through Asia the, the churches in Revelation. Uh, he wants to go to Laodicea and Sardis and Smyrna and Ephesus and Pergamum, but Jesus won't let him. So then he goes up north and he wants to go into Bithynia and Pontus. There, at the far right top corner, and God won't let him go there either. And Paul again has his hope start sagging. Are there times where you feel like you're just spinning your wheels? You're really wanting to tackle something. You're wanting to do something for the Lord. You're wanting to make some changes in your life. And everywhere you turn, there's a closed door. And that can be so frustrating. Especially when you don't know why God's doing it. God, I'm, I'm trying to do this. Why, why are you closing the door? I'm, I'm trying to find this job. I'm trying to pursue this career. And you keep on closing the doors. I'm trying to pursue this man, this woman. And you're always closing doors. And your hope sags. Well, That's where, again, we need to look at hard providences with curiosity. And believe that God is good. And ultimately, he means good for us. So God closed all these doors of where Paul wanted to go. And then one night, Paul has a vision. It's a man from Macedonia. Macedonia is the far upper left of the map. It's Philippi. It's Thessalonica. It's Berea underneath Thessalonica. And this man from Macedonia says, hey, come and help. And Paul realizes that God in his hard providence closed the door on Asia and closed the door on Bithynia and Pontus because God was opening the door to Macedonia. And oh, by the way, Macedonia is the opening of Europe to the gospel. And so in that good providence, ultimately even our stories are connected because we have the gospel in our day because the gospel went to Europe and the gospel came to Europe because God closed the door to other areas. So how have you run into closed doors in your career, in your relationships, in your finances, in any area, and you're frustrated? Can you ask God for the grace to develop a curiosity that he might be up to something really exciting? So then, Paul and Silas and Timothy make their way to Troas. They cross the Aegean Sea and they get to Philippi. Paul preaches in Philippi. There's a a nucleus of new Christians that get converted. They're placed into a church. Paul continues to preach. There's there's some significant women who, who become converted, uh, significant because their husbands are leading men in the city, so they're very influential women. And then Paul runs into this fortune teller who's bugging him, and he casts a demonic spirit out of her. And as a result... Uh, the pagans who owned her uh, lost all of the income that she had gotten them through fortune-telling. And so now they're all upset with Paul. As a result, they create a riot. Paul and Silas are thrown in jail. Remember the story of the Philippian jailer? They're singing hymns at midnight. The angel opens the locks. The jailer turns on the lights while he lights a torch and he's about to kill himself because he sees all the cells are unlocked he thinks everyone's escaped and he knows he's going to be killed anyway so he figures he might as well do it and get it over quickly paul and Silas, silas say hey we're all here the philippian jailer and his family are converted but the people of the city are still in an uproar so paul and silas have to leave by nightfall the city of Philippi. And they're brought to a city 90 miles away called Thessalonica. Now Thessalonica was founded about 330 B.C. by a Greek general. The Greek general named the city after his wife. By the way, this Greek general's wife, stick with me here, was the stepsister of Alexander the Great. And her name was Thessalonica. Now, her name was Thessalonica because her father had won a campaign south of Thessalonica called Thessalia or Thessaly, and as a result of that victory, named her Thessalonica because Nike, of course, means victory, so Thessalonica, victory in uh, Thessalonia or, or Thessalia, there you go, if you've seen my big frat Greek wedding, you're 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 sticking with me. So then Paul preaches uh, in the Thessalonican synagogues for three successive Sabbaths, we're told in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. And people are converted. And as he continues to proclaim the gospel in Thessalonica, uh, even more and more pagan Gentiles are converted out of their idolatry. The problem is Thessalonica is a very loyal Roman city. By the way, Thessalonica was one of the, one of the top ten largest cities in the Roman Empire. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Thessalonica is still the second largest city in Greece. Greece. Did you know that? I didn't know that. It was a significant, and still is a significant city. It has a perfect location for you realtors among us. Location, location, location. That's Thessalonica. Look where it is. See that little, that little hook harbor. I feel like James Spann. That little hook echo. That little hook harbor there, right to the right to the right of the, of the red name Thessalonica. Okay, that's that's a perfectly situated port town. Uh, The wind blows in such a way that Thessalonica's location is perfectly protected. The wind also blows in such a way that when a ship leaves the port of Thessalonica, it has the winds that take it right out of the harbor and into the Aegean Sea. Also, the Roman roads right to left, east to west, went right through Thessalonica. And the main roads going north and south also went through Thessalonica. It was an incredibly prosperous city. And as a result, lots of religions, lots of idolatry, but God bore fruit. So you see, again, these incredible providences that seemed hard for Paul, not being able to go places he wanted to go, yet God opened doors to places that Paul couldn't have imagined. The problem was because Thessalonica was so loyal to Rome, people got upset because they were concerned that Rome was going to slam down on Thessalonica because Paul was preaching another king, Jesus, another king besides Caesar. So there were more riots and Paul once again had to be whisked away down to the southwest into a place called Berea. You remember the Berean Christians from the book of Acts. They were more noble-minded. They examined the scriptures daily to see whether what Paul was saying is true. People were converted in Berea. So after riots in Philippi, planting a church, having to lead young leave young Christians, went to Thessalonica, young Christians, new church, riots had to leave again berea new christians young church and then the jokers from thessalonica that stirred up trouble actually traveled down to berea because they heard that paul was having a ministry there so no matter where paul went he was running into trouble is your life ever like that at every turn there's trouble At every turn, there's trial. At every turn, everything seems to be broken. This is what Paul is experiencing. So, on the one hand, he's experiencing this incredible fruit, but he's concerned for all the fruit because he's having to leave. There's nobody there to follow up these new Christians, there's nobody there to establish these new churches. And so because of the people from Thessalonica that come to Berea, Paul has to be whisked away down to Athens. And when he's in Athens, he sends Silas and Timothy away. He tells them to go back up to Philippi and Thessalonica and see how things are going. And then he's whisked away. After he preaches on the Areopagus, he then goes to Corinth. Now, you need to realize when Paul comes to Corinth, he is wrecked wrecked like car wreck. He's wrecked emotionally. I think sometimes we we make Paul into being Jesus. Paul is not Jesus. Paul is you, and Paul is me. And all of this added up. Barnabas, closed doors, riots, having to leave, not being able to follow up people the way he wanted to, Paul is a wreck. How do we know this? Because when Paul gets to Corinth in 50 A.D., he tells us in the letter to the Corinthians that he wrote later what his state of mind was when he arrived at Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, he says to the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. What providences are you facing today where you find yourself, if you're honest, in great weakness and fear? And much trembling. Well, in Acts eighteen, five, after Paul is in Corinth and he's wrecked, God in his good providence sends Timothy back down from Thessalonica. And Paul learns that they're doing great. Paul learns that he's not indispensable. Paul learns that the church can get along just fine without him. And far from causing his hope to sag, it actually causes his hope to soar. And Paul can't wait to start writing the letter. And so he begins. Verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, Silas, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and in Jesus Christ our Lord. How often do people come up to you and say, Hey, how are you? Do you realize the story that's behind that greeting? I mean, that's basically what Paul says in verse 1. Hey, Paul, Silas, Timothy, to the Thessalonians, how are you? But oh, the context behind that greeting. The split with Barnabas. The closed doors. The riots. The fear. The weakness. The despair. The struggle to keep hope. So next time someone says, hey, how you doing? Pause. Think about what might be going on in their lives as they greet you. And then, of course, when you say, hey, how you doing? And someone says, fine. Recognize there's, there's so much more of a story there than you realize because every single one of us faces really hard providences and we need to encourage each other to fix our eyes on our greater hope Jesus and we need to encourage each other to maintain An incredible curiosity of what might God be up to in the midst of how hard things are, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of frustration. What might God be up to? One of the greatest hymn writers who ever lived is a guy by the name of William Cooper. His name is spelled Cowper, but it's actually pronounced Cooper. Uh, He lived in the 1700s. His mother died when he was really young. His dad did not love him. His dad sent him off to boarding school when he was six. He was abused, he was tormented. He was bullied. He suffered from severe depression. He tried to take his own life numerous times. He ran into a guy named John Newton, the ex-slave trader, who was also William Wilberforce's pastor. And John Newton encouraged William Cooper to write down his depressing thoughts in poems like the Psalms and to seek to be curious about what God might be up to. It was William Cooper who wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, my favorite hymn of all time. He also wrote another hymn, God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea. The sea is a symbol of chaos and darkness, and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable mines of never failing skill. Do you ever feel like you're lost in a deep mine of darkness? And cold, with no way out. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, again, let's not make Paul into Jesus, he was afraid. He lost hope sometimes. And can we be honest? So do we. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds, ye so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. We have no idea what God's doing through hard providences. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast. They don't seem that way to us. But they will. His purposes will ripen fast. Unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste. There's there's no way around it. The bud may have a bitter taste. But sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Folks, I'm just so filled with emotion and tears and brokenheartedness here for you. Because I know your stories. I know what you're going through. I know the closed doors. I know the broken relationships. I know the confusion and the frustration and the anger. And I'm so sorry. But don't lose hope. God will not abandon you. And behind a frowning providence, he's hiding a smile. Can you be curious and hang on and come to this table with fresh hope? The night on which Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Then after supper, he took the cup And he said, This cup is in the new covenant, in my blood, poured out for the remission of sins of many. Drink from it, all of you, and give thanks. Let's pray. God, we know that these elements remain bread and the fruit of the vine, and yet we also know there's great power at this table. We know that it's more than a memorial, we know that it's more than symbolic. We know that as we put our hope in your word and our hope in Christ afresh, that you will pour out deeper hope in our souls and the power of the Spirit in our hearts. So come Holy Spirit now, in Jesus' name, amen.